Hello, and welcome to At the Back of Your Mind, the Inspire the Mind podcast that brings you the science on mental health with a no-nonsense attitude. I'm one of your hosts, Juliette, together with my scientist friends, Carolina and Mariam. We're often joined by fabulous guests, so grab a cup of tea and let's dive into what exactly is at the back of your mind today. Hello everyone. Hi Carolina. How are you doing? Hi Mariam. I'm good. Back in the UK after three months in India. So quite a shock to be received with snow and uh, minus one temperatures. I can't relate. Um, (laughs) In Dubai with like 30 degrees, but I'm glad you're home and I'm sorry that it's snowing, but there we are. British weather for you. So welcome everyone. Today we are going to be talking about the challenges that are faced by NHS staff and healthcare workers. We know that the last few years have been devastating for everyone, um, but specifically for our frontline healthcare staff who have been working in unreal, just unreal and unfathomable conditions. And we wanted to talk about the current landscape and what's being done to address these issues. In fact, Mariam, I have some statistics for our listeners that might be a bit harrowing and they might not have the overview of of how difficult things have been for our NHS uh, staff and more particularly for nurses. So let me tell you about this piece of research by the King's Fund that showed that NHS staff are 50% more likely to experience chronic stress, uh, which is a known contributor to burnout. And factors such as staff shortages, high workload and pressures to maintain high quality patient care all contribute to burnout in NHS staff. In fact, a really recent survey of the impact of the pandemic on the short and long term health and well-being of staff found high rates of probable PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, 36% of respondents, probable common mental health disorders, 51%, that's over half of the workforce. And here we're talking about things like depression and anxiety, and 18% reported alcohol misuse, which is known as a coping mechanism in in situations of stress. A more detailed analysis revealed that actually the rates of PTSD are around 9%, which is double what it is in the general population. And women, younger staff and nurses tend to have poorer outcomes than others. In June 2021, a report by the Samaritans actually identified healthcare workers as one of the five groups whose suicide risk might be exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, it it is so <laughs> bit of a bit of a sad note to start on, but it is important that we're raising awareness. Absolutely, um, and I think having the statistics and the figures can really help put it into perspective how desperate a situation this is and how much this really needs our focus the focus of the community and the government very sadly in just six years between 2011 and 2017 there was at least 307 NHS nurses who died by suicide and these figures were released by the office for national statistics in 2018 and those are pre-pandemic yeah, uh, I mean, so yeah, this God is, knows that, what it looks like now. That was 2011 to 2017. So that was exactly pre-pandemic before any of what's happened in the last few years. So you can imagine that must have increased and the, the effect that the pandemic would have had um, on NHS nurses. And nhsemployers.org also released a stat that nurses are four times as likely to 
to die by suicide than people working in any other profession in the UK. So they are very high risk individuals. Um, and there's a number of challenges we know that are contributing to these statistics. One of the biggest challenges being workplace pressure, which has been amplified dramatically since since the pandemic. And there was um, an employment survey by the Royal College of Nursing published in 2021, December 2021, so quite recently, which highlighted issues of staff morale, sickness absence, and the prospect of rising vacancies. So people are leaving they're leaving the, the profession to seek other work. So we wanted to, to speak to someone who has a lot of expertise in this field, someone who is a lot more knowledgeable than us on the lives and the futures of our nurses in the NHS. We would like to welcome Professor Dame Anne-Marie Rafferty, CBE. much Anne-Marie for joining us. Anne-Marie is a professor dame um, in nursing policy and a former dean of the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing, Midwifery and Palliative Care at King's College London. She's a historian, health workforce and policy researcher, graduated from Edinburgh University in nursing studies, has an MPhil in surgery from Nottingham University, and she's the first nurse to gain a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University. She was seconded to the Department of Health to work with Lord Ara Darzi on the next stage review of the NHS and awarded a CBE for services to healthcare in 2008. She served on the Prime Minister's Commission on the Future of Nursing and Midwifery in 2009-2010 and has been the recipient of various awards. She co-led the Student Commission on the Future of the NHS with King Students and is currently a member of the Times Health Commission. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Carolina. Thank you, Marianne. It's just great to be here with you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We want to discuss with you a topic that is very close to our hearts. Uh, we have been working kind of on the sphere of healthcare for a very long time. I've been in this space for, for about 12 years. And actually, my training was as a biomedical scientist. So I, I was part of the healthcare force for a little while before I moved on to research. But I, I have to say that one of the things that made me leave was was the lack of ideal work conditions in the profession, lack of career progression, uh, lack of rewards for the effort I was putting in. Um, and actually, I, I felt like society wasn't valuing me as a healthcare worker as much as it could value me as a, as a researcher, which is very strange because I do feel like the day-to-day -day impact of healthcare workers is much greater in society than researchers that do experiments in their little lab. <laughs> not to diminish lab work. Not to diminish it. Absolutely not. But, you know, in terms of impact in real time, healthcare workers are saving lives. Research are thinking about ways that 100%. they could save lives in the future, you know. Yeah. I think the last few years have definitely proved to us how critical if we can use that word, key workers, um, how critical are our healthcare workers are and how critical the NHS is. And to see how things have been going um, in the UK recently, it's heartbreaking to say the least. So we wanted to ask you, Anne-Marie, what you feel has kind of driven this problem? What's actually the basis for all these working conditions just not being where they should be? Well, it's just fantastic to be speaking with you this morning and very, very grateful for the invitation to do so. I think this is a long-standing problem. This is not something that's just popped up 
during the pandemic. I mean, we have data that stretches back to the early 2000s, even further back, that demonstrates that, you know, dissatisfaction, burnout rates in, in nursing have been actually very high. And in fact, we did a European study that demonstrated that burnout specifically in England compared with nine other European countries was the highest of all. And it was also very similar to those levels that were reported in countries which had been very much more severely impacted by the economic um, financial crisis as well, such as Spain and Poland and Greece. So in responding to Marianne's question, this is something which long predates the pandemic. And the simple answer is probably underinvestment, chronic underinvestment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the largest, you know, cost in the NHS is the workforce. But I think we tend to see the workforce as a kind of drag anchor and a drain on resources. I mean, I used the word cost there, but I think we need to shift our perception and see it as our greatest asset and an asset that needs not to be sweated, but actually to be treasured and cherished and, and valued highly. And so that's certainly the mindset that I think is needed. Uh, and, and whilst, you know, perhaps in, in government departments, even a health secretary might understand that. And of course, recently, you know, we had Jeremy Hunt as a previous health secretary and then chair of the Health and Care Committee, which reports directly to to, to Parliament on on health issues. And they produced, you know, a report on burnout and talking about the undervaluing of the health workforce as as a whole. And he seemed to be on on the side of of the knights in that. But having moved to the Treasury seems to be adopting a different kind of stance. The Treasury, you know, is, is the department that everyone, every government department has to convince about investment. And so there seems to be a very short term view about the workforce as, as not something that is, is actually an asset to the economy. But, you know, it's quite clear that if you don't have enough healthcare workers and staff shortages are a huge part of the, the current, um, problems and vacancies, then you can't actually return people to productive work. You can't have an economy functioning well, let alone a health economy. So, you know, something's got to shift there in terms of how the workforce is actually perceived. So sorry if I'm oversimplifying, but what I'm hearing is the bottom line is there's a lack of investment that then results investment in the workforce. So people are seen as a cost rather than a resource to invest on. There's a lack of retention and and perhaps career progression. And I'm very much infused with the ideas of social determinants of health by Professor Michael Marmot. It's it's something I've been really studying for the past few months. He says that um, a workforce that has high effort and low 
reward is more likely to have mental health problems and that is seen in lower ranks of professions. So people in lower banding in the NHS, for example, are perhaps more likely, more vulnerable to to burnout and other mental health issues. Uh, Is this something fair to say, Anne-Marie? I think so. And definitely that was one of the findings from the NHS check survey. You know, if you were younger, if you were female and if you were a nurse, then, you know, those were significant risk factors um, for mental health challenges, for depression, for anxiety and for PTSD and burnout. And, you know, I think that really summarises the need to focus on the new recruits who are coming into the profession and the need to shepherd them through their career progression and really, really look after them well, because we're also seeing at the moment, very sadly, a drop in interest, you know, in recruitment terms to the profession by nursing students as well, by about 20%. Now, there was a boost. Yeah, there was a boost during COVID. It was up about 20%. But now this is dropping back. And it's not just in England where we don't have the benefit of a bursary as they do in, well, we do have a, a bursary, but it's a very small bursary. It's half the value of the other devolved nations. And our students also have to pay their tuition fees, which they don't in the other countries of the UK. But even in the most generous kind of uh, settings, as in Scotland, they're still seeing a drop in the interest in coming into the profession. So the conditions and the media reports about how difficult it is to survive and work in in the NHS has kind of knock-on consequences for the public perception of people actually wanting to come into these roles. I was going to say that I'm sure that from a political but also from a personal point of view, the idea of a nurse being caring and loving and nurturing and putting up with difficult situations and kind of giving her whole heart, their whole heart to the profession really plays a huge role. I'm thinking in my head, I'm saying this and I'm thinking of the whole um, war nurse kind of, of stereotype you know, that dedicates their life and is really driven by passion. Do you think that plays a role into maybe a pressure to not ask or not think that they can ask for better pay, better hours? Do you think that plays a role or am I looking too much into it with my Warner's analogy? No, I mean, I think the whole kind of virtue script, as we call it in nursing, and the sort of essentialist views of femininity. I mean, we've just had International Women's Day yesterday, so some of these ideas are fresh in in our mind. That gender stereotyping, I think, does play a significant role. But, you know, just on a very practical level, when people see gaps, they feel the compulsion to actually help to fill those gaps themselves. And certainly, you know, I mean, the Royal College of Nursing did a survey And they were estimating that nurses were donating the equivalent of one day's extra labour to the NHS for free on top of their already very heavy workload because, you know, they were staying behind to finish things off or colleagues hadn't turned up, that absenteeism is actually running very high as well, sickness rates. You know, we're not through the pandemic yet. And, you know, these chronic shortages create this syndemic, if you like, for the workforce. And I think, Carolina, you also mentioned, you know, pay and progression. And one of the issues that we certainly have in nursing 
is that there are far too many nurses on the lowest bandings. You know, they have not actually been able to progress adequately. We've had cuts in continuing professional development. Um, this is another area where cuts are made. And nursing is, a, unfortunately, is often seen as a soft target for savings when, you know, trusts need to balance the book. It's actually much harder to cut doctors because they mm -hmm. have training places in that sort of sense of there being kind of long term strategies. I mean, I'm sure it's not perfect for doctors either. But the fact that we also have not had a workforce plan for the major professions in the health service and a workforce plan full stop. I mean, it's not just for nurses, for other clinicians, doctors allied health professionals as well. I was very upset during the pandemic with the whole NHS Heroes slogan and the whole, I think it was Thursday night that everyone would come out at a certain time and kind of clap. And I thought clapping is not going to save any lives. It's not going to really boost morale in the long term. Plus, heroes are people that have a calling and they decide to leave everything behind to respond to that calling. They're not people that are forced to be in a very dangerous, very risky situation because there is no other way. And they feel the weight of the health of a whole country. And there's no way out other than responding. That's not being a hero. That's being forced into, <laughs> into a path that they, they haven't necessarily had an active role in choosing. They were just pushed down that path. And that, Yes, it just made me very, very angry. I feel the clapping was it was quite a passive way of showing our appreciation because, I mean, I didn't do it because for me, it didn't feel like it was going to help. Like Carolina says, like it was going to help anybody because you can show your support through other more proactive ways, I think. Yes, but that impactful ways. Impact, you know, things that actually have, yeah, an impact. And I just remember like everyone going outside and banging their pots and pans. And I thought, what if there's like an NHS worker or a nurse or a junior doctor, whoever it is, just trying to get a nap or something in? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I was out clapping and actually found it really affecting and, and moving. And it was a great way to build solidarity with your neighbours, you know, who we saw scooting in and out of their homes. This was during the lockdown period. So, you know, as, as a sort of outpouring of gratitude, it was a kind of seismic moment in our cultural history as a country. Well, there were many countries doing it. People in Spain and Italy singing from the balconies yeah. as well. I doing it more frequently videos. as well. Mm -hmm. So it was mm -hmm. part of a kind of cultural movement, I think. But I mean, for that to be the main point of gratitude, if you like, and for that not to be translated into tangible benefits. Yes. I mean, I, I think that disappointment, and given that people were essentially taking on significant risks, they were putting themselves in harm's way, they were going to work when the PPE was rationed and the supply was never sufficient, at least in the early days, to protect people properly. You know, one heard stories about community nurses going out and wearing bin bags, etc. It is heartbreaking to use that word that you did, Marianne, early on, to see that it hasn't translated into some really positive benefits. But let's not underestimate as well what trusts did try to do during the pandemic. I mean, they did put a lot of support measures in place, psychological support, wobble rooms, 
you know, we had British Airways staff coming in and serving and, and lots of restaurants, I mean, offering food. And I mean, I think there was that incredible mobilisation of support in different ways. But making that an enduring feature, I mean, actually, the thing that a lot of people mention is car parking. Free car parking seems to have transformed lives. That's very concrete and tangible, but that hasn't carried on. And I think for some workers as well, like nurses in particular, it's very hard when you've got such a short supply to get off the ward. So the things that are needed, if they are to be done outside of the working day, you're working 12 plus plus hour shifts. It's got to be something that almost is integral to the working day and that you can actually use while you're working in your clinical area. If you have to go out somewhere else, well, you may need a time out and a bit of break. Doctors are in a different position because they can retreat from the clinical area. Nurses are there. They're almost nailed to the floor. Yes, 24-7. And I think that is what really yeah. is so demanding and really so challenging for nurses themselves. So support that is actually in the workplace. And we know that, you know, from NHS check and research that teams are so important to provide some kind of protective shield around the mental health of colleagues. But when you're being moved, you know, this is one of the major triggers for anxiety and distress and depression. When you've been moved, redeployed to an area you have no idea, actually you've never worked in before, you're taken away from your team, everything that's familiar to you, that is truly, really scary. And I think that also, that lack of autonomy, that lack of control over your workplace was really, really, I think for many people, quite terrifying. So the fact that, you know, we now have industrial action and, you know, significant concern over pay, I think is not a surprise, is it? It was only a matter of time, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, pay is the most tangible way that you show reward and recognition and respect for what people do. Words are easy. Deeds are more difficult. That's what I was going to say earlier. Like, it is genuinely just disheartening to hear that that's how our nurses are viewed and our admin staff are viewed as, like, disposable. Disposable. Yeah, like, that's disgusting. Easily replaceable. That is so upsetting. So we know that there are some strikes happening this month as well. So we're in March at the minute for the recording. And I know there's going to be some strikes from the members of the BMA, so the British Medical Association, um, on the 13th, 14th and 15th. You know, nurses have actually called off their strike after the government's agreed to talk about pay. Did you want to tell us a bit about that, Henry, how you feel about what's been happening? Well, I mean, the fact that this whole dispute started way back in November and, you know, it was allowed to drag on for so long, you know, I mean, it's a miracle that actually there has been no casualties from the dispute and the fallout. This has been very carefully managed at least from the Royal College of Nursing's point of view, I, I can only speak about that. But seeing that that was not having an impact and then going for escalation, I think was the only option to bring the government to the table. And I think that it revealed not just intransigence and, you know, a resistance, but I think some element of disdain, I mean, and disrespect, frankly, for 
those workers as well that we won't talk to you about pay for a long time and certainly not pay for this year. I just would like to circle back to the impact of poor mental health of nurses in terms of how the NHS works and the care that can be provided to patients. So I don't want to put the owners, the whole responsibility on nurses and healthcare workers, but I think it's important for people to understand the impact of poor mental health in the workforce, in kind of the care provided and how the NHS works as a whole. And I was wondering if you can give kind of an overview. Well, I mean, I guess the first point is that nursing is a huge part of the infrastructure of care, isn't it, in in the NHS? Um, And, you know, who's it that does all the transfers in terms of just, you know, the, the mechanics of actually managing the discharge, which is a huge blockage to efficiency, as we hear at the moment, and getting dealing with the backlog um, from COVID, dealing with the recovery from the pandemic more generally. Nurses are a huge part of getting waiting lists down. If the government's serious, you know, about one of those pledges, which is Rishi Sunak's waiting list pledge, then there has to be investment in the largest part of the healthcare workforce to actually enable us. And it's just, you know, so impressive at what's been accomplished in the recovery, despite all of these many setbacks and people from NHS Confederation and uh, providers. I mean, all the people who represent the management interests in the NHS have been pleading the government to settle, make it, get, get talking during the strikes in order to end the dispute and be able to get back to work. And nurses want that too, but there is a long kind of, you know, legacy of sickness, of distress, of absenteeism, and there's a radical shake-up needed in the working conditions for nurses themselves. You know, this is largely a female workforce, and yet the flexibility arrangements that we have, and this is not just for nurses, this goes for changing patterns of labour participation in, in medicine as well. We have very poor arrangements for flexibility. So that's something that really needs to to happen and to change. So I think there's, again, several things that need to happen in terms of changing the fortunes, if you like, of our healthcare workers. And the levers that we've got are kind of pay, our progression, our investment in training, and education. And, you know, we're in this extraordinary situation at the moment where we, again, we've had another change of health education England going into NHS England and improvement. So shifting the deck chairs, I'm not saying it's a Titanic, but shifting the pieces on the chessboard, probably a better kind of metaphor, that structural change has kind of produced a, a gap and a lull. But most important of all, you know, we need a cogent, coherent and compelling and invested in workforce plan in order to help address these very, very serious and very long standing issues. And technology is going to help, but there's also signs that technology creates more work of nurses. And we know from our own research, you know, that nurses have a material impact on patient mortality when there's just not enough nurses patients in some services. Sometimes you have to double run 
the introduction of the new with the old. So everything has its kind of unintended consequences. But better educated, especially during the pandemic, but now who's going to be prioritised? And it's interesting that even when we looked across different countries at the consequences of lower staffing and those kind of care decisions that were made, it was really the communication with patients, talking with them and discharge planning were the two things that were frequently missed. And that gives the impression to the public that nurses don't care, that they're lacking in compassion, which of course is far from the case, but they're put in a position where they can't actually do the job that they have been trained to do. And that causes, you know, been quite a lot of media attention on this moral injury. And that's such a, a huge feeling that you are not able to look after people, give them the quality of care that, that they want. That's a huge trigger for burnout. And I think that's now why people, that's one of the major reasons that people are giving for walking out of healthcare. And, you know, I think we also need more research on what alternative careers are people going into. People are, are opting for perhaps even taking a drop in their salary. But to do work that is just less demanding and less kind of stressful, they are recovering themselves. If the NHS does not recover its staff properly, people will take their own destiny into their own hands and rest and recover themselves by leaving, unfortunately. I've seen quite a few articles about that, actually, like people going into more retail-focused roles or customer-facing roles rather than a healthcare role and finding it so much better for their mental health. I think that is just horrendous that our NHS staff and our nurses had to be put into that position in the first place of being between a rock and a hard place, basically, that, that there's no winning. And at the end of the day, they're all human beings too. They have their own families, they have their own troubles, they have their own challenges at home and whatever else they might be facing. And then to have to come into work and face what they are facing in the workplace. I read a recent statistic in one NHS trust in the northeast of England. I can't recall exactly which one it was, but it was in the northeast. Up to 30% of nurses have used a food bank in the last year. Honestly, are we going to inject another app with meditations? And, you know, I am all in for meditations <laughs> and well-being from that point of view. But are we really going to give them another meditation that they can somehow fit into their basic, uh, busy schedule? Or are we going to improve their pay so they don't need to go to food I think banks? it really is about those core issues that we've discussed today, like tackling those rather than this. And I feel this goes across many professions, actually, not just the NHS, but just looking at surface level ways to fix the problem where it's like, you know, oh, I'll throw this app at it or I'll throw this, you know, not that these apps don't have value, but it's almost like a kind of throwaway way of dealing with the mental well-being of this entire workforce rather than actually tackling what the core issues are that are the root of the problem. They're the root of why why the mental well-being is suffering. I think there's many different types of interventions that are needed but I think people have got to have a sense of hope. They've got to feel, I think, that the cavalry are coming. They need to see that people are on their side and that policies 
are changing to bring that support. And think a, a good pay deal is a great start. That would be fantastic. One that helps with some of those kind of basic health for living and getting on with your life type activities. So anything that can improve your access to work and make your life just easier in your everyday life, of which work is an important part. But, you know, these two things are so symbiotic as well. But I think we need, I would like to see from the nursing perspective, and we've been advocating for this for a long time, some kind of mandated minimum standards for staffing. We've got to grasp that nettle written into legislation that actually enables people to know that they're going into a more predictable rather than unstable and unpredictable environment. Because I think that, again, is a major source of anxiety. You don't know how many people are going to be there, if you're going to be moved. You know, there's a lot of concern about that. So a deal on pay, a deal on staffing, I think would be great starts. Then I think you need to be very clear about what the key support factors are. It may be flexibility, it may be childcare. These are big factors and asks, but it may be, you know, it's talking to workers themselves. What do they need? And understanding that there may be, and we use the term discrete choice experiments, which enables people to kind of rank what's important to them, what they value. What is it that different types of workers at different stages in their career actually value and then make an offer? Because I think as as an employer, health and well-being as well has been on the agenda. The Boorman Commission back in 2011 produced a major report. Work and pensions have been looking at this issue in the general population for a very long time. It's not the lack of data, of evidence. It's actually putting that evidence to work that's that's now needed and and taking it very, very seriously and building into a kind of strategic plan that articulates with the workforce plan. It's got to be embedded in the workforce plan moving forward. And modelling helps as well, I think, you know, because we know that if you can reduce retention by a small percentage, you can save lots of money on temporary staffing, bills, etc. So we're leaking money out of the system while scrimping and saving in other areas. And that doesn't actually make any sense. But a coherent plan that you puts that research evidence Mm. to work and prioritises where the workers themselves say what they value having and let them drive and lead that process in a co-production is essential. And we're talking about sustainability because if we don't do this, I, I think the health service is going to fall over. You know, if you just don't have enough people, staffing is at the root of everything, really. And that is fixable and it needs to be fixed. I feel like that's a really nice way to wrap up. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for joining us for this episode. Thank you. It has been incredibly insightful. There was a lot that I just wasn't aware of, and it's been a real pleasure as well. Well, likewise, it's entirely reciprocated. And thank you so much for reaching out and taking the initiative and running this series. It's, it's a tremendous asset to Kings. And yeah, it's wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. everyone it's melissa this episode of at the back of your mind was recorded on the 9th of march 2023 
featuring our hosts Carolina and Mariam, with special guest Professor Dame Anne-Marie Rafferty. Be sure to visit inspirethemind.org forward slash at the back of your mind for more episodes, transcripts, social media and contact information. A big thank you to our editors Anushka Abel, Julia Lombardo and Melissa Coase and our editor-in-chief Professor Carmen Pariante for helping us bring this podcast to the air. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>